Hey everyone, welcome to Epicurean Unicorn, the podcast where we delve into the science and art of bread, patisserie, and so much more. We're interviewing and conversing with experts on these items so that we can better understand and help you learn more about the wonderful culinary world we live in. Our hosts, Amanda, Brayden, and me, Connie, will be guiding you on the delicious adventure that we have in store. So sit back, buckle up, and get ready to rumble. Hello, and welcome to another magical episode of Epicurean Unicorn. It's just me today here, Brayden, one of your three hosts. Our conversation, though, today was with Genevieve Bardwell, an author and expert in salt-rising bread, and it was with Connie, one of your other hosts, and our special guest host, Amanda B. Not our normal host, Amanda A., but Amanda B., who's also been a guest on this show. So thank you so much to Amanda B. for taking some time out of her day to talk to Genevieve about salt-rising bread. I also have to say thank you to Connie and Amanda. They not only recorded this episode, they recorded a wonderful intro and outro that I never heard because through the magic of the internet, we lost the files. So thank you, Connie and Amanda, for taking that time and putting that together. Instead, though, dear listeners, you're stuck with me giving you an introduction to this episode. We're going to get ready now to talk to Genevieve, or I should say Connie and Amanda already did, and we're going to listen to it. Now, what do we have to do to do that? We have to get down to Club Unicorn. You know the drill. Get down those stairs. Wave to Unicorn Bouncer. Get through that door. Look at all the delicious, if not funky smelling, salt rising bread that we have on display here. Thank you very much, Unicorn Chef. Now, if you want to come hang out with us in this funky, funky club, what do you have to do? You have to go on the podcast app of your choice. You need to rate the show as five stars. You need to write a review. That's the most important part. Then, if you're in the US and you've done it on Apple Podcasts, guess what? You're done. If you're not in the US, or you have not done that on Apple Podcasts, then what you need to do is screenshot your review and you need to send it to epicureanunicorn at parados.com. And then, oh, about once every 4.7 months when I actually have a chance to look at it, I will read out what you've sent to me here and you're in Club Unicorn. All of that being said, let's now get to our conversation with Genevieve Bardwell all about Salt Rising Bread. Hit it! And thank you, Genevieve, for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, and from what I understand, you'll be delving into the history of an integral piece of bread when it comes to Americana history. Now, this is a bread that, until recently, um, I hadn't really heard of, although we did bake this at a bakery that I worked at growing up every once in a while. Um, but you're going to tell us how, especially relating to Appalachia history and whatnot, this bread had a much bigger part to play in the food history of our culture than maybe any of us have ever realized. So without further ado, um, Genevieve, could you talk to us about the history of what is known as salt rising bread? Well, I appreciate your introduction and acknowledging that it is a part of American history because you don't find that in the literature so much. And uh, the elders, the uh, elderly people that I've communicated with about salt rising bread, who made salt rising bread, who I learned from how to make salt rising bread, 
they even thought that, well, maybe it came from their uh, descendants in the early 1800s, 1700s from Wales or Europe or the Germans brought it or something. But uh, Susan Brown and I uh, researched it and uh, brought it out to the foray that it was really the American pioneer women who came up with this method of making bread. And probably in the 1700s, maybe even earlier. How do you think this came to be? Was it because, because the, from what it appears, you have a recipe here, and uh, really circling back to that really quickly, you said there's a lack of literature on salt rising bread. However, you and Susan Brown have actually come together to make a book called Salt Rising Bread, which does go in more into depth about this. But um, how do you think this starter actually came to be without giving too much of the book away? Because it seems to be made differently than what you would think of as a classic maybe sourdough starter. There are potatoes or there's even cornmeal involved. Exactly. You, you figure back in the 1700s, uh, wheat is actually a difficult crop to grow. And in the United States, in early America, the 1600s, 1700s, wheat wasn't even known before the white people showed up. And corn was, corn is indigenous to uh, North America, as are potatoes. Um, Both of those originated in South America, Mexico area, but then they had come up by the 1600s. Those two crops had come up to the Native Americans and uh, the pioneers had difficulty growing wheat, but they grew a lot of corn. And um, perhaps uh, uh, Susan and Susan Brown and I, my colleague who's helped me research this bread for the last 30 years, we come up with some theories. Perhaps there was a gravy and uh, leftover from the night before, and it was left in a warm place, like on the side of the hearth, where it wouldn't burn or bake, but kept warm all night. The next morning, uh, the pioneer woman found it. It was had foam on top, and it was probably pretty strong smelling. But it was hardship back then, and no food was wasted. So they took this concoction. They knew it was like a leftover gravy, leftover corn uh, mixture, and they added flour to it, and it rose up, and they baked it into bread. That That's kind of our imaginations about how the first salt rising bread came about, and it was delicious. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like it's a classic necessity was the mother of invention. Exactly. With exactly. frugality. Yeah. Wow, that is, and that's so funny how, I mean, that's kind of a common theme in not just the podcast, but in life too, how some of the best inventions come from these yes. circumstances where you have to make do with what you have. Yes, they do. And and I think because salt rising bread is strong smelling, a lot of people even find it offensive. I don't, but it's it's like a strong cheese before it's ripened to be delicious and uh, so that's the way it is with salt rising bread in the beginning the starter is so strong smelling there are spouses that refuse to let it enter the house and uh, or they'll or they'll insist on putting the toaster out on the back porch 
Gotcha. Yeah, that's a, it's funny, you're speaking about this, and I know more so in the Middle East, there are actually chickpea stars that they make as well, and it's kind of, maybe not if exactly the same spell, if anyone has ever smelled that. I have, I have to say, I was in Crete, and I've been in uh, Turkey, and and I, uh, in Crete, I worked with a baker there who makes the eftazimo. In Greece, the chickpea fermented bread is called an eftazimo. And it smelled exactly like salt rising bread. Yeah. Okay. Which, you know, to the layman might smell a little sulfury, kind of like some, some eggs that have gone on for a little bit. You know, insert your own descriptions. But yeah, the final product itself, um, we, so Amanda, who is here with me, it, we had the privilege to sit in on one of your educational sessions, uh, Genevieve, before the pandemic and learn more about this bread and actually taste it as well. And oh my goodness, the final flavor that that bread brings is so interesting. It's, I think you mentioned it before, but they call it salt rising bread. So you would think it's salty, but no, this is a cheesy flavor that's imparted to the final loaf mm-hmm. if it's done correctly. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's a wonderful smell. That, and the, the the taste, the smell is is unique and rich and tangy, and people remember it. It lingers in their memories. Yeah, really, you don't even need too much of a seasoning for that too. Maybe a little bit of butter. You feel super (laughs) indulgent, but the flavor itself comes through. Um, And we love to focus on sourdoughs and whatnot here, but there is, when we make our traditional sourdoughs, it's always, you know, in a colder environment, um, more traditional means, all of that. So the fact that this is actually kind of a hot starter is very interesting, very different, and neat to take into account. Now, now I saw on your um, uh, invite that you're part of Paratus. Yes, Parados. Parados. Yeah, so, um, yes. Now, yeah, the, the reason I mention that is because in Belgium, and you probably are aware, the Parata Sourdough Library. Yes, yep. And exactly. I've, I've talked to the curator there, Carl de Schmidt, and, mm-hmm. uh, and he has hundreds of wonderful sourdough starters. He has... Uh, uh, and he was telling us about them, the San Francisco sourdough starter and the uh, sourdough starter from Alaska. But there is no salt rising bread starter that he has, or he was not aware of that type of fermentation. But he does have a chickpea starter from Syria, mm-hmm. and um, which is no, fascinating. Is, which is, yeah, and that's why we wanted to bring you on for the show, because... I'd never heard of anything that was especially worm-based. You know, you can change your... There might be potatoes or corn or different substrates as the raw material for the starter, but when it comes to the actual processing of the starter, this is a novel process. And so when you actually look at the process of making the starter, um, it appears that there's a very narrow temperature range associated with starting this item the right way. Um... And that's a warmer temperature range. Now, have you been able to analyze any of the bacteria yes. or the components? At, okay, and so they just grow. Can you tell us a little bit about that, actually? Well, the bacteria are the same bacteria as in the chickpea starter. Uh, the scientists have analyzed the eftazimo, the There's a, a Sudanese bread with lentils called gurgouche. They've scientifically analyzed that and we've compared it with the scientific analysis of salt rising bread 
and it's the same. The same bacteria, which are very common. We have them in our gut, in the, the healthy microflora of the human gut. Uh, primarily, it's a Clostridium perfringens. And right away, this can cause alarm because that bacteria can be a human pathogen. But uh, we uh, contacted Dr. McLean at the University of Pittsburgh, who studies nothing but Clostridium perfringens. And we took a dozen samples up to his laboratory, a loaf of bread. We walked in, and his lab smelled just like salt rising bread. <laughs> And um, so, but he was willing to analyze all of our samples. We had like 15 samples, the bread. He analyzed all of them, did not find any of the toxins in any of the samples of bread. They looked for the DNA, the genes that produce the toxins. They did not find the genes to produce the toxins. And to me, this is fascinating. I mean, as a scientist, here's a bacteria that sometimes can be a pathogen, but we have it in our guts. It's part of the healthy microflora. It's obviously not causing a disease in our bodies, and nor in the bread. And, and why is this? Why I think scientists are just beginning to understand the bacterial interactions um, especially these common bacteria such as Clostridium. Um, I actually had a question about that. So um, in your book, you mentioned that, um, now this was a couple years ago, but you mentioned that, you know, um, that hopefully there would be advances in that kind of microflora research to kind of see how this interacts with our stomachs and, and anything like that. And I was wondering if there has been any advances in that microflora research. And because I know probiotics are all the rage right. these days. Right. And again, even in your book, you mentioned that salt rising bread has been known to calm the stomach, right. like a cup of chamomile tea. Exactly. And so I was just curious if, if there's been any more research and that you could maybe start counting this as a probiotic, almost as like a, a marketing situation. I know. Um, exactly. Um, you know, I don't know of anyone who's studying salt rising bread. Now, the microflora and bacterial interactions are a hot topic in scientific research these days. And they, they want to study these interactions, these bacterial interactions, to also help them uh, maybe answer a new way of antibiotics. In, because since bacteria gain resistance to antibiotics, maybe these other bacteria that are competitive and can um, reproduce faster in certain instances could be an answer. And I would love it if someone wants to investigate the bacterial interactions in salt rising bread. I'd be glad to help them. I, I've actually talked with scientists in Cyprus and Greece, and they're willing to go along with this research question with Eftazimo, with the chickpea fermented bread. So we could combine resources. I'm sure we could find grant money. <laughs> and I'd help with getting the starters going. Because say we need to. Uh, sounds like yeah, Carl of the Sourdough Library. Yes. We need to get everyone involved yes. in one room, one meeting. Yes, we'll uh, get this started. No, that's fascinating for all the other implications that go along with these, you know, positive forms of bacteria taking over as opposed to the negative ones. Um, and it is interesting too because you, in the recipe for this, give two different ways to start 
a salt rising bread starter. And one is using only potatoes with the peel. And the other is combining cornmeal and garbanzo flour, so the chickpeas. So it's fascinating, and I'm curious, when you actually took these samples for analysis, did you give a mixture of potato-started bread and the garbanzo bean and cornmeal-started bread? What we did with the potatoes and the cornmeal starter, uh, we hadn't found out about the chickpeas at that point because when oh, we wow. took these to the lab it was like maybe mm, 2006 2007 and I didn't even and it was through that research of publishing our findings that I found out about the chickpea bread and the publications for those came out in 2011 uh, thereabouts so it, it's all relatively new although now it's been at least a decade but uh, wow. that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Wow. It is so fun. Man, microorganisms. I know. I'm sorry. That's all I can I just get a little lost in it sometimes. The commonalities. I mean, I, I love the idea of here's this bread that's ancient. I mean, the chickpea bread is the history of that goes back thousand years. And here is something that's using microbes, bacteria that are found everywhere that may provide answers to our discomfort, our disease in 2022. It's just yeah. wonderful to think about. Yeah, all the potential. Okay, well, even though we can't, we don't have, you know, solid, solid answers on what this can do for us, uh, our listeners at home can definitely try to create this spread. So can you just walk us through, because I've kind of alluded to and you've alluded to different parts of the process maybe, but as just a brief overview, can you take us through what it would look like to prepare this spread from starter to finish? Sure, sure. Um, there are three stages, the starter, the sponge, and the dough. And uh, right off, you need a reliable, consistent way to keep the starter warm. Uh, uh, as you had mentioned earlier, the temperature range is about uh, 40 degrees Celsius, which is about 104, 105 degrees Fahrenheit. And you can go up and down a few degrees, but that's, to me, that's the magic number. 40 degrees mm -hmm. Celsius, 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And actually, there's a new um, tool, the Instapot, which almost everyone seems to have at the oh. yogurt setting is perfect for making salt rising bread. So you plug in your Instapot, you make a bath, a water bath inside the container, and you put your jar inside there at the yogurt setting and put it on for like 12, 14 hours. You, you probably only need about 8 to 10, but it's always good to go a little over. And then you cover, you put your jar in that water bath, in the Instapot, and then cover it with a towel, and it, uh, it will be just about the perfect temperature. Wow. And this is after taking your starter of potatoes plus yeah. peel or the cornmeal and garbanzo bean with a little bit of flour and a little bit of baking soda, yes. actually, right? Yes. So the, the, we think the theory of the name, salt rising bread, came about because there's some form of salt in the starter. Uh, sometimes you can use table salt. I prefer baking soda. I think it makes a slightly stronger smell, which I use to identify when the starter is ready. 
and uh, so you you and I, and I like to use potatoes cornmeal I always add garbanzo flour I think it makes for a stronger more successful batch and then a little bit of baking soda and um, put that in uh, boiling water to cover with everything and then a, a plastic over the top of the jar with a hole pulled poked in the plastic you got to allow it to breathe Mm-hmm. And uh, then about uh, nine, eight, nine or ten hours later, because you're dealing with wild microbes, it's hard to know exactly when it's ready. And that's the other trick. So the first trick with salt rising bread is the heat. You've got to have that warmth. The second trick is you have to look at it and determine when it's ready. It, you can't go by an exact time. Mm-hmm. And the, you tell it's ready by the foam. It's going to foam up and the smell. So those two um, variables you need to have come together. Okay. Sounds like the smell is unmistakable. Yeah. Once you smell it the first time. And a, and and a lot of people say, oh, it smells horrible. It must be wrong. And they throw it out. <laughs> so, no, wait, wait for the finished good. The finished good approach. Right. That's what we strive for. Um, but yeah, and then a, a common, it looks like you have it listed here as well, or I know a tip when it comes to sourdoughs is just put a rubber band where your starter is as you put it into the water bath, and then you can see X amount of hours later how much it's foamed or how much it's risen, yes. and that's a good indicator of yes. if you're actually experiencing that activity that's essential to making the classic product yes. in the end. Yes, that's a nice tip. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, so... Interesting. Okay, so I don't want to spend too much time on it because we still have the bread. But um, you said the salt, salt rising portion of it. You, there was, you know, it's hypothesized that salts are being created. But you're saying even maybe baking soda is helping to contribute to, is it creating salts or producing the same type of activity that salt might Actually, baking with? soda is a type of salt in, in okay. the chemist's mindset. <clears throat> and uh, so it, I, what it does, I wish I knew, but I wish someone, a scientist could tell us, it, it might act as a sort of buffering agent, it might inhibit yeast and in promoting the bacteria, uh, but it seems to help. No, but you're right. Yeah, because that's a good point that you make. We think of salt as classic table salt in AOH. But salts, from a chemistry standpoint, is this whole class of, you know, dried, uh, potentially crystalline or solid structures that come from another reaction. So that's a very interesting a point to take into account. And, and the reason we, ca- we say that also is because the hi- historical recipes, they used a, other products way back, like in the 1800s. One is called saleratus, which was an early derivative of baking soda. And before that, and I uh, kind of got this confirmed with the Greek, the Crete baker that I talked with, they used potash. Potash, you take ashes from your fire, you add water, and it makes a basic uh, solution and Hmm. uh, very strong. So early recipes put a little bit of potash in. So it's that idea of something alkaline that probably promotes the bacterial fermentation over yeast. Interesting. Okay. All right. Wheels are turning. All right. To be a... to be explored later. All right, cool. Thank you. 
love the little chemistry digressions. They're always so fascinating. Uh, I, but- I just jump in really quick too. I think it's interesting that um, these bacteria kind of need that that alkaline solution. Mm. I know because I've I've made kombucha and things in the past, and you always work on getting it as acidic as possible uh-huh. to 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 prevent bacterial growth. So it's interesting to kind of see the other side of this where you're actually adding something mm-hmm. alkaline mm-hmm. to promote that bacteria. Yeah, there's a whole uh, category of alkaline fermentations. And which, salt rising bread falls under that category. That's so fast. Yeah, both of you make great points. Yeah. We don't, the alkaline fermenters are kind of unsung heroes or maybe there's just not as much yeah because when sourdough became popular it's like all right that lowers ph let's focus on that kimchi lower ph kombucha lower but there's this whole unexplored mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. um ooh, that's right for the picture. i mean you can I google it there's books we contributed to a book on the uh, uh fermentation of alkaline uh bleh. Anyway, I can't quite remember the title. It was this scientific journal about alkaline fermentation. So there's quite a bit known. But I think you're right. Less, and and for some reason, they're less well-known than the acidic fermentations. Well, with this podcast, we're going to change that. So <laughs> something to look forward to. Um, okay, so really quickly, I totally distracted you. You explained that's the starter. Okay. But then there's the sponge step yeah. and the dough step. So, so. so you have this foam and the smell. And uh, it's ready to go to the second stage, which is the sponge stage. You remove the potatoes. That's the only thing you have to remove because they're kind of a solid mass. They've been uh, sliced thin. And you remove the potatoes and then you add flour. So now you're introducing more of a wheat flour, wheat grain to this fermented mixture. And you uh, add a little bit more water, flour, till it's like a pancake consistency. Put it back in the water bath. Again, it, it must be kept warm. And you let that double in size. And this is a good indicator for you. Uh, if your sponge doesn't double in size, then the bread will not rise up. So this is a good way for you to not waste so much flour as going into the dough stage. And uh, you'll find that the smell starts to become somewhat sweeter and less strong. And, um, and once that doubles, again, you have to watch it. A good sponge will double in half an hour. But then okay. again, the next day, it might take an hour or an hour and a half. So again, you, you have to be at the mercy of these wild microbes. And once it doubles up, you catch it. You don't want it to fall. So you, you can even be watching it and you keep a close eye on that. And even when it's about to double, you, it'll start to sink in on itself. That's the time to catch it. Then you pour it into the bowl, add a lot of flour to make your dough and a little bit of salt just for the, mostly the flavor of the bread at this point, and you've got it. Uh, some people add sugar, milk, lard. I tend to just go simple. I just add flour and salt and until you have a nice dough consistency. About uh, Professionally, it's about a 65% uh, uh, hydration in the dough okay. and um, it, uh, slightly on the wet side. And then you pan it up because it doesn't hold its shape. I like it on a wet dough that won't hold its shape if you sat it on the table. And then let it rise up to the top of the pan and bake it. 
Gotcha. No, and even looking at the pictures of this bread, it's not your traditional, what you think of as a loaf that has a nice rounded top. Right. It is a little bit more square in nature right. because it's not exactly, because you don't add any yeast, it looks no, like no. here. It's all natural yes. leavening. Yes. Yeah. yeah the, I mean, you can add yeast and a lot of the bakeries who sell it commercially do add yeast. I think that really hides, it masks the wonderful bacterial flavor that you get with salt mm. rising bread. And and mm. and the yeast make that domed appearance on a dough. This is a primarily hydrogen gas. It's a slightly weaker gas than the carbon dioxide gas in yeasted doughs. So you don't get the domed uh, look to the final loaf. You get more of a flat look. Interesting. Oh, hydrogen based. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is just. Um, this is pioneering. Yeah, Amanda. Sorry, because I, I know you had some question. flavor questions. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Um, actually, I have a question about the mixing. So um, when you said you add, like, the flour and the salt and everything, are you just mixing all of that by hand? Um, oh, or well, are you kind of throwing it into a mixer? Are sure. you going for any sort of gluten development? Oh, yeah. Or no? Oh, yeah. For okay. sure. You are definitely <clears throat> getting the gluten development. At the bakery, we would make 40 loaves at a time and definitely always used a mixer. Uh, at home... Mm-hmm. Um, when I make a couple loaves, I like to just feel it. Um, you know, you get familiar with the consistency of the dough and, and how wet or it is. So I like to just make it by hand. Okay. Do you go for like a gluten window then? I to don't. To kind of test when that's done no. or how? Okay. No, I don't. That's um, good to know. That's a further development that doesn't seem to be necessary. I like the tender crumb in salt rising bread. So yeah, it's a wetter dough and it's less developed. Those are great questions. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I think it, to me, um, it just kind of goes along with the cheesy flavor of the finished product to be a less developed dough and uh... my other question is so you you've gotten you you've put all this effort into a starter and you've gotten it to the sponge stage what and but what happens when your sponge doesn't double um do you have anything any fun recipes be like okay we've already sunk like 12 to 14 hours into this (laughs) is there something that we could make that doesn't rely on right like uh maybe crackers or uh, flatbreads or something that doesn't necessarily need that rise Um, because it just seems so sad to have put all this effort into a starter and then you finally get to the sponge stage and it doesn't double or anything like that. Yes, that that is sad. And uh, I mean, you could make crackers. I've heard, and I think it was at that uh, class at Elwood that there was a local bakery there that used the starter to make cornbread. And, you know, I've never done that because I always go on to the finished stage, but why not make a cornbread out of it? And uh, it's maybe not, you don't, depend on the fermentation at that point you could just uh, yeah or crepes or sure I I love that idea Uh, it salt rising bread does also make a wonderful pizza dough which isn't leavened as much as a bread dough would make so okay cool that is fantastic Um, and yet and so the question that Amanda had asked beforehand too I thought it was very interesting and you kind of mentioned it 
we've heard of this more in a savory format, but you had mentioned that, okay, people do sometimes add sugar, do sometimes add fat to make it more of a rich dough. Um, and Amanda, I don't want to, if you want to ask it in your own way, there was a question about flavor and how that might contribute to it. Uh, so on the one page, I was looking at your recipe for the toast, and I noticed that you mentioned um, that this in bread is interesting because yeast-raised doughs have a lot more sugar in them. Uh, so that they actually toast up easier than this salt rising bread. So I noticed in the recipe, you're like, make sure you turn your toaster up and, true. and things like that. And you kind of did touch on it, as Connie said, that some people add lard and sugar. But um, is there like a sweet dough version of this? And would it would it stand up to being made into like cinnamon buns? Or, or is it something that like weird the flavor kind of dictates that it's more kept on the savory side because I know there's like the cheesy notes and things like that um, but it was I was just more curious if anyone had tried doing anything sweeter with this kind of dough um, and if if it would hold up to that yeah we've made kind of rolls or tea rolls and um, it's it's good I guess the flavor by itself is just wonderful so people have have just appreciated that uh, it does make great stuffing uh the crouton yeah. so th and then again you're going for that savory flavor i guess the cheese itself really lends itself to savory more than sweet okay. i was gonna say even based on that i'm getting ideas that this might be a great charcuterie bread uh yes. you have oh, your jam fabulous and you have this yes. then there you go yes. there's your cheese and your jam all in one shot yes so. yeah <laughs> or uh, uh there's a wonderful lost creek farm to table in west virginia they take the salt rising bread they toast it they put smoked trout pickled onions and oh. it's just wonderful oh I <laughs> a crustini okay. a salt rising bread crustini well, Amanda, you are the amazing. pickled onion queen at work. She makes some really good pickled onions. I was so, about to uh, say, I love meat. pickled red onions and I love smoked trout. So um, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That is absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah. And just to know how even through development, no pun intended, uh, but even the process as well, it's bread, but it's a different entity than at least I've ever experienced before. Um, I've only been in the industry for five years, but it has been in bread and I, this was the first time really seeing something novel like this. So thank you for mm -hmm. taking time to explain, you know, how it's made, how it's processed, the history. Is there anything more about this or are there initiatives to try to promote awareness um, of this bread in more modern culture today, or is that still a work in progress? Well, there's the Rising Creek Bakery uh, that we started in 2010 because nobody could buy salt rising bread and the skill and art of making it. People just don't have time in our busy lives to spend, uh, you know, 18, 20 hours making bread. So um, there's the Rising Creek Bakery in Mount Morris, and I think there's a few other bakeries around that are making it, and uh, it that's wonderful. I, I really hope, I, I know there's a, a baker up in New York, Western New York, where it's quite well known, and he's wanting to, uh, actually their specialty there is to make an, a salt rising English muffin, Ooh. which I think is a fantastic Ooh. idea, fantastic. Oh, yeah. 
Oh my goodness. No, and that's interesting too because I um, only just learned how to make English muffins the other day mm-hmm. and that is a very different process mm-hmm. as compared to what you would normally think of bread-like. And uh, it looks, the dough and the starter for English muffins does seem to be a lot more similar to salt rising bread. And and so. here, it's Angelica Bakery in New York and they uh, sprinkle cornmeal on the bottom so you get that cornmeal look and they put it in the molds, let it rise up, and then they just bake it. So it isn't really grilled like a, an official English muffin recipe might call for. But it, mm-hmm. but it's a wonderful flavor, and it's toasted. You always toast English muffins, so there you go. Wow. Oh, that is um, fascinating. I had another question, actually. You mentioned um, that it is as high up as New York. So I, I, I know the Appalachians kind of span from Georgia all the way up to Maine. Uh, but it seems like your research kind of centered around the West Virginia, Pennsylvania, now New York area. Do you see variations as far down as Georgia and as high up as Maine? or Not or? in Maine, interestingly, but in Canada. I've actually been talking with the culinary historians of Canada and uh, the loyalists... So here we're going back into the 1700s, uh, the revolution, 1776, right, in, in early America. The, the people who wanted to stay aligned with the queen didn't like the end result of the revolution in 1700s. So they, in the Appalachian region, both went up and moved to uh, Ontario, They were known as the Loyalists, and they took with them salt-rising bread recipes. So it's fascinating. I just recently found out this past year that one of the earliest recipes, 1830s, was from Ontario, Canada. Interesting. That is fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing Mm -hmm. that. That was really cool. Wow. All right. Well, it sounds like there is – I always – dislike cutting interviews, you know, short when there's a lot to talk about. But it sounds like you have given us a fantastic summary of the history, the recipe, what's happening today when it comes to culture, and where there are definitely areas that we could explore more, both when it comes to flavor or positive probiotic and health um, effects as well. So for people who are curious to learn more about salt rising bread, well, first of all, you mentioned you can purchase the bread itself to get an idea of the flavor from Rising Creek Bakery. Um, what was the uh, the one restaurant or the bakery in New York you had mentioned as well? Uh, Angelica Bakery. Angelica Bakery. Mm-hmm. All right. So people, listeners can go there. But also, could you shamelessly plug the book that Amanda and I both purchased uh, about this as well? Sure. Uh, it's called Salt Rising Bread. And uh, it, it also... Uh, uh, can be bought on Amazon, and you can ask uh, your favorite bookstore, local bookstore, if they can purchase it for you. And I have a website, Wild Fermented Breads with an S dot com, and there people there are recipes there for salt rising bread, and uh, I'd love to hear your comments, questions. You can contact me. Ver- via the website wildfermentedbreads.com. And I talk about the similarities between salt rising bread and the chickpea fermented breads. Mm. All right. Oh, that's perfect. So we can really get a deep dive into the history um, without, you know, listening all over. So, all right. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much, Genevieve. Your time is appreciated. And it's been a pleasure. Even though, you know, 
Yeah, we sat through your educational session a few years ago, but there's always something new to learn just having conversations like this. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks again to Connie. Thanks again to Amanda B. And most definitely, and most importantly, thank you to Genevieve for coming on and sharing her knowledge about salt rising bread. There was a lot in there that I learned when I was putting this episode together, and it was really interesting, and I look forward to learning some more about it. If you're looking for Genevieve, the best thing to do is to check out the show notes for this. We'll put some links to her work in there where you can find her book, and you can read all about this traditional baked good. Remember, if you want to reach out to us, send us a mail at epicureanunicornatprados.com. We may just read it out on one of these shows when we have just the hosts here. We always do love hearing, though, and conversing with you, so send us a mail, check in, tell us how you're doing, ask us a question. We love to chat. That's about all for today. Thank you all. Take care. Stay well. And as always, we will be seeing you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, comments, baking troubles, or are just epicurious about the topics discussed today, you can send an email to epicureanunicorn at If your question is short and sweet, we may even feature it on the show. Epicurean Unicorn is a production of the Parados Corporation. Help us to keep spreading the magic of food through continued conversation and the pursuit of knowledge. This has been a Studio 47 production.